0: This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We have a great guest for today's show, and so without much further ado, we're going to move right into that. Our guest today has spent much time as a public servant. While this is a term often used interchangeably for politician, we think that is not quite correct here. Make no mistake about it, he has been just that, a politician. But in his case, you're required to add a maverick politician. Dennis Kucinich made the national news in 1977 when he became the youngest person ever to become mayor of a major American city, in this case, Cleveland, Ohio, at age 31. Mayor Kucinich would go on to serve in the U.S. House of Representatives from 1997 to 2013. Twice in that interim, he sought the Democratic nomination for president. Between stints as an elected official, he's been a commentator, a radio show host, something we appreciate, and author. His autobiography, The Courage to Survive, was described by Gore Vidal as good as Theodore Dreiser. We're pleased to note, that we spoke with presidential candidate Kucinich many years back. We especially valued his efforts to halt the Bush-Cheney war in Iraq. Also, the fact that he sought to hold both men to account for the lies told in effort to jumpstart that ill-advised conflict. We seek to engage him today to discuss his most recent literary effort. It is titled The Division of Light and Power and describes in remarkable detail his tumultuous term as a city councilman and mayor, wherein Dennis Kosinich fought the powerful actors who'd become accustomed to directing Cleveland City Hall to serve their interests. Norman Solomon calls it a political barn burner, not just based on a true story, it is a true story. Said Ralph Nader, an engrossing narrative of city politics, corruption, and intransigence as few books before. We certainly agree with Citizen Nader. The Division of Light and Power is a rare first-person account of shady corporate maneuvers, fraud, misuse of public resources, and corrupt political practices, the likes of which, well, just about knocks your socks off. Believe you me, there's a story here. And to hear about it, we're pleased to be able to say, welcome back to Radio Parallax, Congressman Dennis Kucinich.
1: Doug, it's uh, good to be with you after so many years, and I'm very appreciative of that uh, introduction. It's very humbling. And thank you for, uh, for your kindness, and I look forward to speaking about the Division of Light
0: and Power. I'd like to start by looking at your first term on the city council. You got quite an education. A, a man named Al Grisanti pointed out to you that urban renewal, which is something you assume was a good thing, was really a way to impoverish the poor by enriching the wealthy. Can you talk about your learning curve as a freshman councilman?
1: Yeah, I mean, Al Grisanti is a good place to start because he was an attorney who fought an urban renewal program that actually ended up removing thousands of acres of land and moving people out of their homes uh, near downtown Cleveland and into tenement districts that became over overcrowded and uh, with substandard conditions. I learned through Al Grisanti about how urban renewal ended up being a disaster for Cleveland, uh, enriched, as you said, uh, some powerful uh, real estate interests at the expense. Of, of a lot of poor people and people who just uh, had a, a neighborhood they could call their own with with modest homes and just forced them out and turned the land into a speculator's dream. That program was eventually canceled by the federal government. In a way, it presaged the story of the division of light and power, and that is that there are things that government did that were against the interests of the people, and it either wasn't thought out or was implemented in a way that helped interest groups, and did not help the general public. In
0: 1977, you surprised the old boy network by not giving in to their wheeling and dealing, and in the process ignited a firestorm. Can you outline for listeners the entities you took on and, and why you felt the need to do so?
1: When I was a 23-year-old, I was elected uh, city councilman in Cleveland. And the Division of Light and Power opens up uh, on, uh, on the event where i'm I'm just weeks away from getting sworn into the council, I'm shopping with my wife in downtown Cleveland at Christmas time. All the lights go off in downtown christmas is 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 blacked out. And I called the Division of Light and Power, which is of course the title of the book, but also the name of the municipal electric system. and the operator tells me, look, You know, all the the whole system's down, and we don't have a backup. And CEI, the Cleveland Electric Illuminating Company, the private power company, the utility monopoly with whom the city competed, wouldn't provide the city with a backup because otherwise the city was isolated from the national grid. And so he told me that, and that started me on a journey of asking questions. And it led me to, and this is in the book, uh, to discover... Corporate espionage, sabotage, corporate interference with the government of the city, the attempt to upend the finances of the city to try to force the city to sell its municipal electric system, and then later on, mob directed uh, assassination plots. I mean, this book is a true account, heavily documented account, of one person's determination to stand up for the public interest against a corporate community that was determined to take an electric system from the people and their supporters in the media. And, you know, there's never been a story quite like this been told because I was on the inside. You know, I was the mayor and I fought City Hall.
0: <laughs> I did like that line. <laughs> you were you were the mayor trying to fight City Hall. You certainly did.
1: I just want to note
0: for listeners that people are cynical about politics, but even cynics are going to be surprised by what is outlined in your book. That CEI would sabotage the power links and cause deliberate blackouts in the effort to seize control the muni light is, is shocking, but... They didn't do it just once.
1: No, they did it repeatedly, and, and they did it to undermine public confidence in the electric system. How were they able to cause blackouts? Because the city was tied. When it needed power, it had to go to this private system because the private system blocked repairs to the city's city generators, stopped the city from being able to buy power from anywhere outside the city, charged the city triple- the amount that anybody else was paying for emergency power, and then when the city needed power, the power transfer was operated in such a way as to deliberately cause a blackout on the Muni Light system. And so, these blackouts were used to try to justify the sale of the system. And the media picked up on it, and they said, "Well, you know, the Muni system isn't working; got to, got to sell it." And check this out, CI sent its salespeople into the Muni Light communities right after the blackout and saying, oh, it looks like your system isn't working. Let's let's sign up for one that does work. I mean, it's like a mob mentality. And so, yeah, that's a, that's the kind of stuff that I was up against. But the willingness to take a stand, and other people are listening right now, you should know that the least amount of courage that you show can create a pushback that causes these monopolies to say, oh, wait, maybe we better cause a course correction. Unfortunately, in Cleveland, they had so much support in the media that uh, the public interest took a while to be able to rescue.
0: Well, members of the city council, led by its chairman, moved again and again to sell Muni light to CEI. And again and again, you fought their efforts and pointed out that there'd been no appraisal, no competitive bid, dubious pricing. You had strong arguments. Nevertheless, it's you that was soon having to wear a bulletproof vest. It's got pretty ugly fast.
1: Well, it did after the city was, you know, serious in in selling this system and put legislation forward to sell it at a bargain basement in price, the city's electric system was worth at least a quarter of a billion dollars, and the city was ready to peddle it for $88.1 million. When I started the public campaign, a high-powered rifle shot missed my head by a fraction of an inch. Later on, when I became mayor, police intelligence came to me and said, there's a mob-directed assassination plot here. And so they increased the police guard. They, you know, I had to wear a bulletproof vest everywhere. I never talked about it publicly, Doug, when this was going on, uh, because I didn't want the distraction of the, such a sensational event. But later on, a U.S. Senate subcommittee on organized crime in the Midwest proved that there was this mob directed assassination plot. And police intelligence, the head of it came to me and he explained it to me. He said, "Look, this is all about Muni Light. You're stopping some people from making a lot of money." I've been I've been told that this story compares to Chinatown, The Godfather, and Mister Smith Goes to Washington. <laughs> it's caught the public's imagination when they see actually the kind of things that went on behind the scenes. And I'm sure this isn't only in Cleveland. It's just that. You know, I lived to tell about it, and I was the mayor, and I was inside, and I kept close notes and have documented everything that happened. Doug, today it's important because, look, once that American Rescue Plan money runs out, every city's going to start looking at privatizing or-, or selling off some of its assets. Right. Very dangerous thing to do. This book will help equip citizens to fight back.
0: We certainly hope so. The details in your book are, again, they're somewhat astounding. You noted at one point that you set out to audit the city's finances. You were hindered by the fact that they couldn't locate the books.
1: Well, there is that. (laughs) And they couldn't locate the books because, well, first of all, some records were destroyed. And secondly, the books were kept by a law firm that was also working for the private utility monopoly, and that law firm was working against the city and actually advised the city against its own interest. So, you know, this book, The Division of Lighting Power, is a story about, a, about corruption on so many different levels, and, you know, in the legal community, in the media community, in the political community, in the corporate community, uh, and, and again, was it possible to stand up? You bet it was. Was it necessary to stand up? Of course. And, you know, did I take risks? Of course. But I will tell you that any citizen who's listening right now should know that that the smallest expression of courage can cause these forces to slow down. And once you can slow them down, you have a chance to win.
0: Well, I didn't want to confuse uh, listeners with too many numbers, Congressman, but, I, I, but the figures you put in the book about the proposed sale of Munilite – the figures tell a tale in themselves. So I do want to throw out one example. You reckoned that Muni was worth perhaps $250 million, yet that was going to be picked up for $158 million. And far worse, CEA was going to only pay up $38 million up front and the remaining $120 million over 30 years without interest, which makes the real sale price something like $88 million and then current dollars. You didn't stress it in the book, but for me, those numbers really revealed what an epic swindle was in play.
1: Well, that's the point. The point is that this was a swindle, and, and the corporations tried to extort the city's electric system using credit as a weapon. I mean, that's really, you know, one of the important parts of the book is how a big bank told me on December 15, 1978, either you sell the city's electric system, to this private utility monopoly, in which the bank was a business partner, or we, the bank, are not going to renew the city's credit on loans I hadn't even taken out. And, And they wanted me to sell it at a cut rate. So it was a theft. It was extortion. Again, this is a story that is a cautionary story for every person who cares about their local government to know exactly what's going on behind the scenes, except in this case I brought it all forward publicly.
0: Well, you stood firm against that sale of muni light. So the money interest tried a new tack, which was recalling you as mayor. can you Can you talk about that?
1: Well, there was a recall, and you know, I may have helped fuel it by uh, firing a police chief live on a six o'clock news on good <laughs> on Good Friday. Uh, you know there 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 is that. but but the recall was waiting right after I got elected mayor. And all the corporate interests who opposed my election were already raising money, getting ready to try to knock me out of office. So, look, I could have played arrowless ball, but as long as I was against the sale of Muni Light and opposed the tax abatement, they were coming after me.
0: Well, something else is very, I was very impressed by in your book is the accurate and unflattering picture that you paint about the press coverage of events. You're very upfront about how you had to fight the media while you were battling the political chicanery, and for a long time, the press appeared to be on the side of the chicanery.
1: Well, the media was getting advertising revenue from the uh, utility. I mean, this particular utility spent handsomely advertising radio, television, newspapers. And in the book, I detail how various reporters lost their jobs when they challenged this utility monopoly. One, Steve Clark, who was the drive-time leader in the ratings, I had a radio show, number one in Cleveland by far, and he raised questions about the utility rates, how they kept increasing. This CEI, the Cleveland Electric Illuminating Company, kept increasing utility rates. Steve Clark raised the question. It wasn't too long where he was out of the job, and it was told specifically to him that, you know, you can't go after this advertiser. And so, and other reporters in the book, and I I detail it and document it, as soon as they ran into the utilities or, in some cases, the bank, they lost their jobs. I mean, or they resigned uh, rather than be disgraced by being forced to be shills for the corporation. So this book, The Division of Light and Power, talks about how the media was in cahoots with the corporations in trying to deprive the people of Cleveland of a municipal electric system that had been created at the turn of the century. And over the objections, by the way, of this utility monopoly. So, again, this story is important for people to know about because you learn how to fight back. And you also see the kind of power dynamics that go on that people maybe never thought about before. But once you read the book, you're going to be equipped to challenge uh, local government, uh, and, and for that matter, government at all levels, by being able to raise the question that, will seem like, why are you even talking about it? You'll be able to raise the right questions. And and Doug, I want to add one thing, because you mentioned this in your introduction. The experience that I gained in Cleveland enabled me, as a member of Congress, to go forward and challenge that Iraq war. It was because I learned how to see through the lies. And, and, that, and yeah. you know, that was what I learned in Cleveland, how to, how to look at what was going on and say, hey, wait a minute, this isn't right, and to speak it, not just to think it, But to call them on it, I'm I'm hopeful that as people read the book, it will inspire people to speak out and it will uh, cause people to start to think about ways that they can challenge the status quo in their communities.
0: Well, we're certainly with you on that. Years after you fought your fight in Cleveland, Enron pulled an epic swindle that cost California taxpayers gobs of money. Uh, not one legislator in Sacramento voted against the package that enabled the robbery, and the media didn't pick up on it until it was well underway. And I, I guess these scams are going to go on forever, and the public just needs to be vigilant.
1: Well, look at PG&E and how, you know, they burned down Para- paradise California, you know, because of neglect. They didn't want to spend money. Uh, in uh, fixing the infrastructure and in in trimming areas out so there weren't a fire hazard. I I mean, the same thing happened in Ohio, where the Cleveland Electric Illuminate Company, again, failed to properly trim tree line, and it resulted in that massive blackout in the the early part of the uh, uh, 2000s where 50 million people were, were, were without lights on the entire East Coast. I mean, these utility monopolies, they get a privilege. To have a monopoly, and are supposed to provide good service at an affordable price, but generally what the public's getting is bad service at a high price.
0: You stuck to your guns on all of this, and as you were managing to hold your position, that apparently got some other people to reach for guns. We uh, need to talk a little bit more about the the highly unsettling fact that you faced three or maybe more assassination attempts, and that because luck was with you, uh, you, you you're with us today.
1: Oh, as I pointed out earlier. Uh, when I started the campaign to save our municipal electric system, uh, a high-powered rifle shot missed my head by a fraction. Uh, later on, uh, after I was elected and uh, took office as mayor, uh, around Easter, a, a police uh, fought off a guy who had a shotgun outside my window at my house. And then the police intelligence came to me and they said, "Look, there's an assassination plot." And the head of intelligence later on told me. You know, this is all about muni life, We're stopping some people from making a lot of money. And it, I think I mentioned that it, that was confirmed by the U.S. Senate Subcommittee on uh, Organized Crime in the Midwest. Was there a risk? Yes. Was it one that I, w- I welcome? Absolutely not. Uh, but, you know, you have to stand for something. You can't be intimidated if you're going to be in public life. You, if you're standing for the people, you have to do it fearlessly. And I think courage opens all doors. And the other thing is, Doug, you cannot walk in faith and fear at the same time. I mean, I had a faith in in my community, faith in the people. You cannot worry about this because if you do, you end up being like the character in Warren Beatty's uh, picture, (laughs) Bullworth, where you're always looking around and you're ducking every time you hear a noise. I can't live that way, and I don't. Well,
0: as the story went on, the Cleveland Trust Bank and CEI, with collusion from the Cleveland City Council, did drive the city into default which became an international story, and you point out in detail how the whole thing was manufactured by this cabal, and yet you were blamed.
1: Still am. (laughs) Believe it or not, there's still elements of the Cleveland media which, 43 years later, still want to blame me for a default which was engineered because I didn't sell the municipal electric system the city had the money to pay off the defaulted notes, but the banks wouldn't take any payment other than the electric system. And then, when the people voted for a tax, an increase to increase their taxes to pay off the defaulted notes on loans I hadn't taken out, the banks said, Okay, people pay, uh, uh, vote for the tax. We'll take the city out of default The people pass the tax. The banks reneged on their promise kept the city of Cleveland in, in default until after I left office. I, I mean, this was a, a, the kind of coup that is pulled against Latin American government. You know, my feeling was, look, uh, I, I wasn't elected by the banks or the utilities. The people put me in there. And I wasn't going to knuckle down to them simply because they said the price of, of stability was selling a municipal electric system. And I document this whole thing. And again, Doug, today, there are still elements of the media in Cleveland who just want, don't want to explain it to people, because to do so would be to raise some fundamental questions about how the heck did this, this happen, and in some cases, sure. the media's complicity.
0: Well, we want, we got to tell uh, listeners who don't know that uh, you you won this battle. The sale of Muni light was halted. It never did go through. Your your reward, of course, was be, to be defeated in a run for reelection. election but uh, over time, it seems... Absolutely clear that your standard principle has been completely vindicated. Uh, the city council, 20 years later, in 1998, honored your refusal to sell it because it saved the people of Cleveland $300 million.
1: Well, that, that was up to that point. I mean, at, at this point, uh, the savings to the people have been, you know, probably upwards of, of double that, if sure. not more. And, and the, the point being that, uh, yeah, it's easy for people to say after the fact, well, you did the right thing. But at that point uh, of, of the default, everybody was, you know, it, 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 from all over I was getting it, saying you got to sell this light system because the banks had created an environment that said that there was no other way for the city to be able to exist other than sell a municipal electric system. They reconstructed the social reality of the city. They created an alternative reality, and because they had control of the media, they were able to pull it off for a time being. With the publication of this book, people are saying, wow, this really happened. Yes, it did. And yes, it was a conspiracy against uh, uh, by every major institution against the interests of the people of Cleveland. And I'm privileged to have been able to take a stand to defend the public interest. Look, yes, I lost the next election. But you know what, Doug? There are some things more important in winning an election, and one of those things that's more important is doing the right thing, no matter what the pressure is.
0: Well, you were Cleveland's youngest mayor uh, four decades ago, and you've announced your candidacy for 2021. One can only assume after reading the book that you must not expect a level of turmoil and corruption comparable to 1979. Uh, we, we assume you're, you're not seeking to fight City Hall yet again. Uh,
1: there's different players, but the dynamic that goes on in the big city. Is pretty consistent. Some think they have a right, a God-ordained right, to the assets of a community because of their corporate power. Even though Cleveland has changed dramatically, has half the population that it had then, there's still this type of group think that says, well, let the corporations make the decisions for the city and let the public officials follow their lead. That's not the way democracy is supposed to work.
0: Well, I got one laugh at your mention in the book of how all these many years later, Council Chair George Forbes, who fought you tooth and nail, and, and the details in the book are, are pretty darn colorful, admitted years later that Dennis was right.
1: Yes. <laughs> and, and you know, and, and when you read the book, and George Forbes and I were uh, at uh, cross purposes throughout the book. Today, he's a friend of mine. In the early part of the book, an acknowledgement, that if George and I can become friends today, world peace is possible. (laughs) I don't have any hard feelings towards anybody involved in the story. I just tell the story. It's not an ideological tale. It is just a factual recounting of what happened. And when people look at it, they'll draw their own conclusions. I don't try to demonize anyone. I just tell the story. But in telling the story, it's a revelation about the dangers that exist if... The public interest isn't represented in some way, shape, or form. That was my job to do that, notwithstanding the risk, notwithstanding the disadvantage to my political career in taking those positions. Uh, Doug, I never knew that I'd ever have a chance to come back into elected office once I said no to, those, to the banks. Right. Because blame for the default. I still am in some quarters. Uh, but, you know, the point is, when it's your moment, take a stand and, you know, let's, let other people keep the score.
0: Well, I recommend your book to listeners. I've never read anything quite like it. You've included shocking details. I've been very open about the cost to you personally, as well as your family and, and your colleagues that worked with you. I, I thank you for putting it all down onto paper, and it, it, it could not have been easier for you to rehash a lot of this nonsense.
1: Well, I couldn't write the book initially. I tried in 1979 in November to start. I was too close to it. it, was, it, it when I, and then when I had teased out all the granular details over the years, I was surprised at the avalanche of efforts that were being made to try to force me to sell this system. I mean, I was fighting on one level, but then I saw the the details that were going on from so many different quarters. You know, I appreciate that I have a chance to talk about it today. It was a tough fight. The book, by the way, uh, that you read is The 7th Draft. It took me years to be able to work through it. Uh, Finally, in 2008, I just started writing, didn't stop, and that's what you're reading right now with all the documentation.
0: I would like to make one suggestion. A film documentary based on this book is going to be pretty entertaining and informative. I I certainly hope you make one.
1: I've had people talking to me already about either a a movie or a TV series. Uh, There's no question that the dramatic elements of this book lend itself to a wider circulation. Uh, but, you know, that's something that I don't really think about too much now. I, things have a way of taking care of themselves. Whatever you can do to let people know about it, to post it on a, uh, the, the details on a website or whatever, I'd really be very appreciative of that.
0: We'll certainly do what we can. Before we close out today, I did want to ask you one question about a national issue. There's concerns by a lot of, of a lot of people, us, among them, that the disenfranchising of voters, particularly black voters, is uh, is going on all over the us. Um, you've seen it again and again how elections can be manipulated by the malevolent. And as one who's always stood up for the disenfranchised, what do you say about these these current machinations?
1: Look, I know about how elections can be changed. Now I, at the beginning of the book, I tell the story of how we had to tear down the door of a polling place in order to stop election from uh, an election from being stolen. Today, there's other ways to seal an election, and that is to pass laws that make it more difficult to vote. In a, in a representative democracy, it's fundamental to have the broadest uh, participation and, and to the least restrictions to make it possible for people to vote. It's not a privilege to vote, it's a right. And we we are uh, are now in the midst of, uh, of, of efforts being made to frustrate people's right to vote And it certainly is affecting uh, minority communities, but it affects all of us because it it degrades the quality of our democracy when people do not have a chance to, uh, to vote. You take that together with the Citizens United decision, which lets corporations be able to put dark money into elections, and you have one of the reasons why people are sad about the state of affairs relating to our government.
0: That's for sure. Our guest today has been author Dennis Kucinich, who has written an insider's tale of the hardball politics which he faced as Cleveland's mayor. The Division of Light and Power tells a remarkable tale of politics at its worst, but in the end, our guest refused to give in, and in the end, he won. Dennis Kucinich paid a high price for standing on principle, but as he says in his epilogue, he was right and has no regrets. Well, thank you for speaking with us, Congressman. I hope we'll speak again, and, and, and we wish you luck in your return run for mayor.
1: Doug, I appreciate that, and uh, uh, please uh, know that I'm always available to be on your show. And uh, again, I appreciate you informing your listeners about this book uh, and uh, circulating word of it. So thank you again for this chance to be with you, and uh, have a good day.
0: You're welcome. Full speed ahead, sir. Bye-bye. take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. We've got plenty more. Stick around.